say it, but I'm sure you did, and I'm sure you did a great job, so thank you very much. <coughs> Wayne's comments reminded me of a saying that if a matter is too small to pray about, it's too small to worry about. And if it's big enough to pray about and you've prayed about it, there's no need to worry about it. I thought that was pretty good. I heard that years ago. All right, so we are continuing a discussion of the life of Christ. And there are different ways that, that I could have gone with this study. One would have been to spend 13 weeks in apologetics of Jesus, proof of Jesus being the Christ. We could have gone into the scriptures. And certainly we would not have exhausted that method over a 13-week period. Uh, instead, we spent the first class, for those of you who may be here for the first time, we spent the first class talking about the eternality of Jesus, that he is the eternal word who became flesh and dwelt among us, John, uh, Jesus, or John said in John 1 and verse 14. And then from then, we spent a good deal of our time just talking about Jesus' deeds and works that he did while he was here on the earth and what we can learn from those. And so with that, we're, we're kind of taking that same direction tonight. We are going to get to a point where we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we'll talk about the proofs of the resurrection. Some really, as uh, one of my professors back in school would say, some ungetoverable proofs, things that you can't deny. In fact, just like uh, Luke said when he wrote Acts in chapter 1 and verse 3, he talked about by many infallible proofs he showed himself to be alive. So we'll talk about those as well. And as time permits, we'll talk about Jesus' role today. And that's an exciting thing to think about because when you think about the religions of the world, you think about... Judaism, you think about Islam, you think about Buddhism, they can't talk about the Messiah who still lives, can they? Because you think about Islam, their great prophet Muhammad is dead, and they go and, and commemorate or memorialize him going around his tomb, but they don't have to do that with Jesus because the tomb is empty. So we'll talk about that and what our Savior still does or has done for us and continues to do as our mediator. All right, so tonight we're going to talk about Jesus as the teacher. We're going to talk about different aspects of his teachings, not only the settings and to whom he spoke, but also uh, how he spoke. Some suggest that there are as many as 36 statements or series of statements in the New Testament in the Gospel accounts that could be categorized as sermons. We've got one that stands out, right? There's one that everybody knows, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We'll talk about that. We're going to go into some more detail on that. But here's what I want you to consider this evening, this first section, and this is from the BibleCharts.org website. If you haven't ever been to that site, it's a good one to go to. A lot of good material on there. We talk about Jesus' teaching. And as we look at each of these points, we won't spend a lot of detail on them. We just want to kind of highlight there's one central theme I want you to see, and I'll wait till we get to the end of it, and then we'll talk about that. But one thing I want you to see about Jesus' teaching. First of all, let's note that Jesus taught publicly in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 39. That particular lesson had to do with the corruption among the Jewish leadership, where he had exhorted his listeners to obey the Jewish leadership as long as they were teaching God's truth, the law of Moses under that time, but to not do what they did. So do what they say as long as they teach the truth of God, but don't do what they do. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. 
And he goes on in that chapter, in Matthew chapter 23, to talk about uh, different woes that he pronounced about the scribes and the Pharisees. He called them what? Over and over again, what did he call them? He called them hypocrites. Referred to them as hypocrites because of that very fact that they were saying one thing and doing something else. They were abusing people as well. So he taught that publicly. But then on the heels of that, as recorded in Matthew 24, chapter 3 through 25 and verse 6, he taught privately. So as that chapter begins, chapter 24, we find him meeting with his disciples. And they have a concern because he said something about the temple being destroyed, and they wanted to know what that meant. They weren't sure how to, uh, how to understand that. And so they asked him that privately, and he responded to them privately, and he informed them of some things that were going to be happening, ultimately leading up to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. And then later on he talks about the, uh, the final judgment, but the bulk of that chapter, chapter 24, is taken up with the discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem. So he taught publicly, he taught privately, kind of like Paul in Acts 20 and verse 20, when he met with the elders from the church at Ephesus. Talked about how they had taught publicly and from house to house. It's a good balance that still applies today and is still something that we should do today. We teach publicly, but also we teach privately in one-on-one and small group situations. So he taught during the day in Luke 21 and verse 38. We find that he had been in the temple speaking, and when nighttime came, they'd all departed the temple. But it says in the morning, the crowds gathered around again. They were anxious to hear him. So he taught during the day, but he also taught during the night. Who came to him in John 3, 21 through 21? Remember who came in the night to him? Nicodemus came to him at night, exactly. So he taught during the day, he taught during the night. He taught in cities, and I'd like to look at this in... Equipment malfunction here, Billy. There we go. Okay. Let's look at that in John chapter 7. Because while we're talking about the teaching of Jesus, I want to, uh, on about three points here, look at the people's response to his teaching. In Matthew chapter 7, the passage is in verses 14 through 29. Excuse me, John chapter 7, I said Matthew. It's in John chapter 7, 14 through 29. What I'd like you to notice is in verse 15. Verse 14 says, About the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught, and the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters? having never learned. Okay, so they were rather astounded because, why, because Jesus was illiterate? Is that what he means by saying, was that what they meant by saying he hadn't learned letters? I mean, he couldn't read or write? No, that's not what that means. So what are they saying? He hadn't learned what? He hadn't learned their school, from their schools. There were two primary Jewish schools during that time. One was by a uh, rabbi known as, as uh, Shimei, and the other was by a rabbi named Hillel. And they were the two primary preaching schools, if you please, of the day. And they hadn't, Jesus hadn't attended their preaching schools. And I'm not saying that I have anything against preaching schools, understand? Okay, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, but he didn't, he didn't follow their traditions. 
And it kind of, it's kind of reminiscent when after the uh, church was begun and the apostles, you come to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, and the apostles were brought before the Jewish leadership, and it says that they took note of them because they had been with Jesus. But also they recognized that these were unlearned, as they said, unlearned and ignorant men. Does that mean they couldn't read or write? I mean that they were illiterate? No, it doesn't mean that at all. They thought anybody who didn't grow up in their schools was not worthy of even standing there talking to them. So they were amazed that they had such knowledge as that. In this case, they were amazed, how can Jesus know so much when he's never really learned anything, but he had learned. And that's why he says in verse 16, my doctrine is not mine, but his has sent me. So Jesus taught in the cities, he taught in the countryside. Matthew 5, 1, when we get to the uh, Sermon on the Mount just a little bit, we'll see exactly where he was. He was out in the countryside. He was out on a mountain place teaching. In, uh, let's see where I'm at up there. He taught his own people in Matthew 13, 54 through 58. Let's go look at that, because again, I want to notice the reaction. When we say his own people, we're talking about the people of Nazareth. So this is in Matthew 13, 54 through 58. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. When he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, inasmuch and so much that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man wisdom and these mighty works? So again, they don't understand because he didn't go to the schools. But they took it a step further. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? In other words, he's just an ordinary guy who grew up in the carpenter's home. How did he get all this knowledge? Well, if they had investigated, they would have found out. If they had actually would have sat and listened to him carefully, they would have discovered, because again, as we just saw from our passage in John 7, he said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. He taught the words. He's going to say that when we get to that in just a little bit. He taught the words of the Father. That's where his knowledge came from. If they would have investigated and listened carefully to him, they would have discovered that. In fact, in John chapter 5, when Jesus is addressing the Jewish leadership who is opposing him, he said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are those which testify of me. So in other words, if you would just open up the law of Moses, you would see who the Messiah was to be, and you would see me fitting those prophecies of the Messiah. So they thought that perhaps he, um, uh, he didn't, he couldn't really know anything because he was just one of them. And so verse 57 says they were offended at him. Somebody have another version, verse 57, in the King James says they were offended in him. Does somebody have something else? Does everybody say offended? Matthew 13, 57. Does anybody have anything other than offended? They took offense at him. Okay. So they took offense. Well, why did they take offense? They thought maybe he was making it up because he was just one of them. But Jesus' response to that was, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So again, we see the response to that. And there are a variety of responses to Jesus' teachings, which we'll see as we go through. In uh, John chapter 4, 4 through 42, he taught people of other races. That's the case of him being going through Samaria and seeing, remember, the woman at the well and how he taught her about the, the, uh, the living water. 
And other disciples were amazed that he was talking to her, but he taught her. And as a result of that, many people of the city came out and heard the truth as well. So he taught people of other races as well as his own people. He taught his friends. And back in Matthew 13, verses 36 through 43, since we were there just a minute ago, it says, Jesus went, sent the multitudes away and went to the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. So he taught those who were closest to him, but also he taught strangers. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, he went into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, and that's when the, the Canaanite woman came out whose, whose uh, daughter had had the, uh, the demons in her. So he taught friends, he taught strangers, he taught the rich in Luke 8. And by the way, that's the wrong verse there. That should be Mark 9, 17 through 22 if you're writing this down. He taught the rich, Mark 9, 17 through 22. Who's, who's that going to be about? Jesus taught rich, the rich young ruler. Okay, so he taught the rich, but he also taught the poor. In Luke chapter 4 and in verse 18, Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, as he's reading, he's in Nazareth, he's back in his home country again, he's in Nazareth, and he's reading the book of Isaiah, and he's quoting from verse 18, reading from verse, excuse me, from Isaiah. Verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. If you go also, I don't have this up there, but if you look at Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, we find that John the Immerser had been put into prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus with the question, are you the one who should come or do we look for somebody else? And in Matthew 11, verse 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and all this. The gospel, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Okay, pause there just for a second to consider the impressiveness of this, how impressive this is. This was given as a response to John who asked the question, are you the one who should come or do we look for another? And there are various explanations as to why John is asking this at this particular point. We won't get into that. But he asked this question and in response to that, Jesus gives him the evidence tells his disciples to go back with the evidence about the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead being raised up. But the poor having the gospel preaching them, that's not miraculous, is it? Those other things are miraculous. This is not miraculous. So why would Jesus give that as evidence of him being the one who is to come? Any thoughts? The prophecy which we saw just a minute ago, you're right, from Isaiah, okay? All right, that's a good point. How were, generally speaking, when we read the gospel accounts, how were the poor being treated? Were they being treated well? Keep your finger here. We'll come back here and say, go to Matthew 23 with me where Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Look in Matthew 23, and in verse 14, 
It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayer, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. That's just an example of how they were mistreating the unfortunate. They were cheating widows. And the sad thing about this is, when you go back and read the prophets, such as Micah, and read about the condemnation that God was delivering to the nation of Judah, one of the things that he was condemning is the fact that they were abusing each other. They were mistreating one another. They were cheating one another. And they hadn't learned their lesson from the prophets. So consider the fact, first of all, that this evidence that Jesus gives to John's disciples of him being the one who was to come, that one, it was prophesied that he would go to the poor, but two, consider the, the way the people were being treated. Don't you know that Jesus was a breath of fresh air? Remember in Luke chapter 14 that there was an incident in the house of one of the Jewish leaders where they were having a feast and Jesus was invited to the meal. And when he walked in, he looked around, what did he see? He saw everybody running for the best seats in the house, the seats of honor. In those days, the tables would be set and there would be seats of honor like a dais, kind of like if we were honoring somebody. The head table, yeah, and they all ran for that because they figured who else, kind of like, you know, back in Esther's day, uh, Haman, kind of like him, they're saying, who else would the king want to honor but me? So they figured, well, you know, we deserve to be at the front table. And Jesus observed that and he noticed, he, he went and told them specifically, he said, try this out. Go out and find people who can't pay you back and invite them to come eat with you. You see, Jesus really couldn't have cared less about political priority or political power, could he? It wasn't about what you can do for me. It was about what, he came to, what did he come to do? He came to do what? Seek and save the lost. In Matthew chapter 20, he taught us to be servants. Why? Because he's a servant. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is what? The one who serves. Why? Because our master serves. What did he prove in John 13 when he washed the disciples' feet? He illustrated that, didn't he? About the need to be a servant. So I think it's interesting, not only the prophecy, but also when you consider the way people were being treated by those who were supposed to be their religious leaders. Jesus stood out like a bright light in a dark and cold and angry world because he didn't care who you were. He loved you anyway. And I think that's impressive to me. He, he didn't check somebody's bank book before he taught them. He didn't ask them how much he could, they could put in his collection plate. He taught them anyway. All right, so he taught the poor. He taught public officials in Luke 19. Verses 1 through 27. Just a quick reference to that. There was a wee little man named what? Zacchaeus. Okay. He was a publican. He was a tax collector. Jesus taught him. And of course, everybody was real happy to see Jesus going into the household of Zacchaeus, right? No. 
not at all. They were very critical of him for doing that because he had been uh, hanging around with the publicans and with the sinners. But he also taught private citizens. I've got a reference there to Luke 23, 27, verses 27 through 31. Of course, that would categorize all, all the others as well. There he's just talking about the teaching those who were following him to the cross. Uh, he taught military personnel, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. That's the case where the centurion had the servant who was sick, and he asked Jesus if he would heal him. And Jesus was willing to go to his house, and the centurion said, No, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Just say the word, and he'll be healed. Of course, Jesus was marveling. He marveled. There's not many times the word marvel is used in the New Testament, but he marveled at the faith of the centurion because it was stronger than those who should have known better, the Jews who should have known better. He was impressed with that, and the man's servant was healed. So he taught military personnel, he taught civilians, he taught religious leaders. Matthew 9, verses 11 through 13, let's take a look at that. Matthew 9, 11 through 13, go back to verse 10 to start. It came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So who is he who he's addressing? He's addressing the Pharisees. They were supposed to be the religious leaders. They were supposed to be the ones who knew what the word of God was. And yet Jesus said, and, and again, you, you, you've got to see with each statement like this, that in the minds of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're, they're checking off another one. They're putting another tick mark in there. Here's something else that he said that's offensive to us. And Jesus said this, go and learn what that means. And again, keep in mind that these leaders, these Jewish leaders, pretty much felt like we cited earlier from John chapter 5 where Jesus said um, to, to go and read, search the scriptures. Here's doing the same thing. Go learn what that means. He's suggesting that strong enough word. He's telling them, you don't know what that means. You don't understand what the prophet meant when he said, I'm not... I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You don't understand it. And of course, they didn't like that. But Jesus addressed rich and poor. He addressed the powerful and the not so powerful in a way that was intended to get them to listen to him. So he taught religious leaders. He taught religious followers. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, we talked about that a little bit ago, talking about John's disciples. He taught in his hometown. We saw that, Luke 4, 16 through 30. And he taught in neighboring communities. Let's look again. That's uh, John 4, excuse me, Luke 4. Let's look at that. Luke 4, verses 32, 31 and 32. Luke 4, 31 and 32. This is right after they tried to murder Jesus in verse 29. Verse 31 says, They came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were, again, this reaction that we see, they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. In the Sermon on the Mount, when it closed in Matthew chapter 7, 
the very last words of Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. After the Sermon on the Mount was finished, it says, It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Matthew gives a little more detail as to why they were astonished. He says he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, do you, do you see that? You see the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and all the other religious leaders. By this time, they had incorporated their traditions into law. So that in some cases, such as we see in Matthew 15, they felt like their tradition was more important than the law of God. But when you have traditions that are based in human thought and opinion, you have differences of opinion, do you not? You have people saying it one way and some saying another. So obviously you have the Pharisees and Sadducees, they disagreed on the resurrection. Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, bodily resurrection, the Pharisees did. The Sadducees believed only the first five books of the old, what we call the Old Testament were inspired. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pharisees believed all of it was inspired. So when people would go to them with questions, what would they get for answers? Well, they might get the Word of God, just like Jesus said in Matthew 23, but they also might get thrown at, have some tradition thrown at them as well, right? And so they go to one group and they're given their tradition. They go to another group and they're given their tradition. But when Jesus came, he was consistent. And it was speak, he was speaking in agreement with what the prophets had been saying, with what the Old Covenant had been saying. Therefore, they were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them as one having authority and not the scribes. With all these different disagreeing doctrines. That had to have been impressive. Okay, so these are things that we see about the master's, the master teaching. Now, I said I'd come back to this. I've got a golden thread that weaves its way through every one of those points that maybe I need to make clear because I, I hate to ask things without making it obvious, but to me, I see one thing in there. Jesus taught, let me just review these again. Jesus taught publicly, he taught privately. He taught during the day, he taught during the night. He taught in cities, he taught in the countryside. He taught his people, he taught people of other races. He taught his friends, he taught strangers, he taught the rich, he taught the poor. He taught public officials, he taught private citizens. He taught the military, he taught civilians, he taught religious leaders, he taught religious followers. He taught in his hometown, he taught in neighboring communities. What would you say is consistent here? What do you learn about Jesus as a teacher from these passages? He's non-discriminatory. What? What else was there? He loved everyone. He wanted everyone to be saved, wanted everybody to hear the truth. Okay, anything else? He wasn't a respecter of persons. He taught wherever he was. Okay. Is, is everybody getting the application here? If our master teacher, was it Will Rogers who said, I never met a man I didn't like? We might say Jesus never met an opportunity to teach that he didn't take. 
no matter where he was, no matter who it was, he was going to take an opportunity or make an opportunity to teach the truth of God. Does everybody get the application? If he's our master teacher and that's the way he taught, what should we be doing? Right, same thing. We, we, there's, there's no place for us to be determining beforehand who we should teach and who we shouldn't teach. What did Jesus see when he looked? When he looked in the face of the poor, the rich, whatever color skin that person had, whatever political position that had, when he looked into their eyes, what did he see? He saw souls. Do we see the same? So that's a lesson that I think would be good for us to take from this, among others as well. But I think to remember through all these things, the thread that, that ties all this together is the fact that Jesus just taught. And he took every opportunity and made every opportunity he could to, to teach. So with that, let's talk about how he taught or what he taught maybe. He taught the truth of God, John 8 and verse 32, because it's the truth that shall make you free. So that's what he taught. He taught the words of God. That's the wrong verse. It should be John 8, 28. I want to take a look at these. Since these are only one verse each, let's take a look at these. John 8 and verse 28. Jesus, first of all, taught the word of God, truth of God. Now we're going to say that he taught the, the words of God. John 8 and verse 28. Jesus said unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. John 12 and verse 49. Same point. John 12 and verse 49. I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. Jesus taught the truth of God. Jesus taught the words of God. Jesus taught the love of God. John 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him, he gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus taught the will of God in John chapter 6 and in verse 36. Thirty-eight. I'm sorry, you're right. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. So he taught the will of God. Thank you. Jesus taught the way of God. In fact, in John 14, verse 6, he even refers to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus taught the doctrine of God. John 7 and verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, as we saw this earlier, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Jesus taught doctrine. Some people think we ought not teach doctrine. The word doctrine simply means teaching. So we're just teaching what God has revealed through his word. Jesus taught the promises of God in Luke chapter 24 and in verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, speaking to the disciples, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Jesus taught with power. We saw that earlier from Luke 4 and verse 32. And we also saw Matthew 7, 29, that he taught with authority. So again, if he is our master teacher, our example, and he is, 1 Peter 2, 20 and 22, 
He is our example that we're to walk in his steps. And he showed us in his actions that we are to just spread the word, just teach the word. I mean, what was that parable about in Matthew 13, the, the, the seed being taken out? In Luke's account, Luke 8, 11, it says the seed is the word of God. What's that parable about? Remember the sower went out to sow? Different types of soil, some along the wayside, some on the rocky, some on the thorny, some in the good. What's that parable about? Parable of the sower. What's it about? Different types of people. That's one way to look at it, true. What's another way to look at it? What did that sower do? Did he test the soil before he put the seed out? He just threw the seed out, didn't he? That's not good farming, is it? Uh, I grew up in farm country. And before you throw the seed in the ground, you have to uh, till it up and make sure it's good and fertilized and ready for the seed. That's not good sowing. It's not good planting. But we're not talking about physical seed, are we? The spiritual seed which we sow is that which we just cast everywhere, just like Jesus did, which we already saw, just like he did. The master teacher taught everywhere he could. But let's talk about what he taught and see, can we still learn from that? Is that something we need to do? Do we need to teach the truth of God? Do we need to teach the words of God? Do we need to teach the love of God? Do we need to teach the will of God, the way of God, the doctrine of God, the promises of God? Do we need to teach with power and with authority? Yes. Let's look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's talking about his work as a preacher of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Folks, that's the same platform that we need to abide by, just like Jesus did. With power and with authority means that we do it according to his will, to what God has written. That's what Paul is saying. When I came to you, I didn't put on a show for me. It wasn't about me. Paul basically says, I'm really not that great of a speaker. But I taught you God's truth. And of course, he had the miraculous ability, which we don't, but he had the miraculous ability to, to, to demonstrate. But he had the strength of the word there to teach with authority and with power. We can teach with that same authority because we have the truth. And the truth shall make you free, John 8, verse 32. So again, the master teacher, we look at him and we learn for ourselves, how should I teach? If he taught that way, should I not teach in the same way? And the answer is yes, I should. Questions, comments? Okay. Okay. So our actions need to be consistent with the truth that we teach. That's true. And again, that was the problem with the Jewish leaders of the day, and that's where Jesus stood out, because what he said, what you saw is what you got. What he said, he stood, stood by. He lived what he taught.
Same thing we should be doing. All right, let's go look at the uh, Sermon on the Mount with the time we have left then. Left then. This is broken down. This is from one of Mark Copeland's outlines. But this breaks down the elements of the Sermon on the Mount. And actually, I'm going to go a little bit more than what he's got up there as well. Because as I'm looking through here, I'm looking to see what is Jesus' focus on this? What is he trying to accomplish? Obviously, he's wanting to save souls, but how is he doing it? So you see it broken down there. We're not going to have time to go through all these. But you see how it's broken down. And you can get this, you can see, if you can see, it's kind of small print. If you go to executableoutlines.com, you can find this particular outline. But in the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Beatitudes. We have the discussion of salt and light, Jesus and the law, righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, murder and anger concerning adultery, the effects of divorce, the swearing of oaths, taking revenge, treatment of enemies, charitable deeds, prayer, fasting, materialism, anxiety, ahead of myself, judging others, asking, seeking, and knocking, the golden rule, and exhortations in entering the kingdom. So let's go back to the first again. And let's get a little bit more detail as far as we're breaking this down. What's, what's involved in this sermon? First of all, it opens up with the Beatitudes, which the word translated blessed, your version may say happy. That's a good word. It's because that's what it means. You want to be happy? People talking about happiness, they say, God wants me to be happy. Yeah, he does. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be happy doing what he says. People get that mixed up. They think he wants me to be happy so I can do anything I want that makes me happy. Now, if you look at these blessings or happiness in these Beatitudes, they're all about doing God's will. That's real happiness. Real happiness is obeying God's will. And this demonstrates that. So, again, keep in mind, what human audience, and we're, you know, couple thousand years or so removed from the this actual delivery of this sermon. What human audience would not like to hear a lesson about the secret to happiness? Do you have any friends who think you think would like to know more about how to be happy? I'm sure we all would like to know that. There you go. That's how he starts it out. And again, consider that many of these people who are listening to him have been oppressed not only by the Romans, but by their religious leaders as well. So he starts out talking about happiness. Then he goes and talks about influence. That's in verses 13 through 16, where he talks about salt and light. We're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. So our happiness is not self-contained. Our happiness emanates from within, but it's not to be self-contained. We're to take that and to demonstrate that to others. So the blessing that we enjoy, the blessedness, the happiness that we enjoy as disciples of Christ should flow through us so that we're an influence on others. That's what he gets into in the next section. Then we get into beginning in verse 5 there and going all the way down to chapter 5, verses 43 and 48. So this covers Jesus and the law, 
righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, murder and anger, concerning adultery, the effects of divorce, the swearing of oaths, taking revenge, and treatment of enemies. This is me now. This is, this is me doing this. This isn't in the scripture. This is me helping trying to understand what he's talking about here. And I've categorized this into, this, into the heading of a higher standard. <clears throat> a higher standard. Because each of these things he deals with here talks about the standard that is greater than what they had seen or what they were seeing at that time. How many times does he say, such as down in verse uh, 21, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time. Verse 38, you have heard that it hath been said. Verse 43, you have heard that it hath been said. So what Jesus is doing in, these partic- in this particular section of the sermon, he's already said, here's the secret to happiness. Show that to others in your influence. Now, live by a higher standard. Go to a new level. In fact, what did he say as that section begins? In uh, <clears throat> verse 20, he said, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, we've already seen what the, righteous of, of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was. It was hypocrisy. They didn't do what they said. And they didn't do what God said. They said one thing and did something else. So this whole section I've categorized under the heading of higher standard. You've got a higher standard to live by. Exceed what you had heard. Exceed what the Pharisees and scribes had set up in their traditions. Go beyond that and follow this higher standard. Okay, then the next section is Matthew 6, 1 through Matthew 6, 18, where he's talking about charitable charitable deeds, prayer, and fasting. Of course, in each of those, he's talking about the hypocrites who were doing these things to be seen of men. So the heading that I put these three under, charitable, charitable deeds, fasting, and prayer, is the heading of service from the heart. Because apparently, from what we read, the Jewish religious leaders had turned religion into something that was heartless, just to go through the motions. And that's exemplified by what Jesus says in these three passages, the the person giving their alms so that everybody could see what they were doing, the person praying so that everybody could see what they were doing, the person fasting so that everybody could see what they were doing. So categorize these three sections from Matthew 6, 1 through Matthew 6, 18 <clears throat> under the heading of service from the heart. So another section, Matthew 6, 19 through 24, talking about materialism, talking about priorities. So you're seeing the flow of this, happiness, influence, higher standard, serve from the heart, set your priorities right. And then he goes into trust in chapter 6, 25 through 34. So you set your priorities right. When I set my priorities right, it means that I'm not trying to get the attention of men. I'm seeking the approval of God. In seeking the approval of God, sometimes men may not like that. But it doesn't matter if they like it or not because God will take care of me. That's trust. That's Matthew 6, 25 through 34, which ends verse 34. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Don't worry about those things. God will take care no matter what man does. 
And then we've got the section on judging others. Still fitting into this flow of this sermon that we see as he's dealing now with self-examination first. Because what were the scribes and Pharisees doing? And Sadducees, what were they doing? They were looking at your problems instead of their own. He does not prohibit making judgments. In John 7, 24, Jesus said, judge righteous judgment. Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. We are not prohibited from making judgments, but in making judgments, we're to first look at ourselves, kind of like Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 1, that we're to go to the brother who is in sin and we're to look first at ourselves. So that's the point he's making here. Don't be like those scribes and Pharisees who are all the time pointing the finger and won't ever look at themselves. You look at yourself first. Make sure you have your life in the proper way. And then we get back to the matter of trust, 7, 7 through 11, asking, seeking, and knocking. And then the golden rule speaks for itself, Matthew 7 and verse 12. And then finally, the emphasis as the sermon closes with obedience, which is a great way to end a sermon, just like Brother Wayne did tonight when he talked about, just like Kyle does every time he preaches when he talks about obeying the gospel, telling people what to do to become Christians, stressing obedience to the gospel for the remission of sins. That's how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount, with obedience, talking about those two men who built, one who built on this rock, one who built on the sand. Okay, how's that for timing? All right, we will, um, next week we're going to talk about the opposition that Jesus faced, the Jewish leadership, and some more about them, but also we're going to dovetail from that into relationships. We're going to talk about not only those who opposed Jesus, but how he dealt with them as well as how he dealt with his disciples, how he dealt with his family, and so on. So let's bow together as we pray. Father, we're thankful that we had the opportunity tonight to study your word, and we're thankful that you bless us and allow us this time. We pray that we'll honor you as we go from this place, and that each day we'll remember that you have given us a great blessing to be your servants and in your kingdom. May we glorify you in what we say and do, and may we lead others to you. The teaching of your word, may we set a godly example before them, so that they'll want to know more about you. In Jesus' name.